Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So today I'm speaking with paediatric pain scientist and psychologist, Dr. Melanie Knoll. Melanie is an associate professor of clinical psychology at the University of Calgary and a full member of the Alberta Children's Hospital Research Institute and the Hotchkiss Brain Institute. She teaches and supervises within the CPA-accredited clinical psychology graduate program in the Department of Psychology at the University of Calgary. And her behavioural research lab is based within the V. Riddle Children's Pain and Rehabilitation Centre at Alberta Children's Hospital. Melanie completed her PhD in clinical psychology at Dalhousie University, Canada, and held a postdoctoral fellowship in paediatric pain research at the Seattle Children's Research Institute. The overarching aim of her research is to understand and harness the influence of cognitive behavioural factors like pain memories on children's pain trajectories using developmental frameworks. Her interests cover the areas of acute pain, such as painful medical procedures, such as surgeries and vaccinations, and chronic pain in a variety of clinical and healthy populations. So in this episode, we talk about public health messaging in relation to pain, in particular the influence of these messages on children. We talk about the nature and prevalence of paediatric chronic pain and some of the key predictors for such pain conditions. We talk about diagnostic uncertainty for children with chronic pain and their parents. And we go into her research in the area of children's anxiety and pain memories as cognitive effective mechanisms underlying the trajectories of paediatric pain and future pain as adults. We touch on the dynamic and dyadic relationship between a parent's mood and behavioural responses to a child's chronic pain and how parents' protective responses, such as pain catastrophizing, influence a child's pain experience. And Melanie talks us through her strategies to reconstruct and reframe a child's pain experience to engender more positive behaviours and attitudes towards pain. And at the end of the show, you'll hear our surprise that Melanie and I share a common experience with her having triplets and me being a triplet. So this was an absolutely fascinating talk with someone really at the edge of knowledge in this crucial field. Melanie's sheer enthusiasm and passion for her work is a joy to listen to as well as her compassion for the participants and patients that are involved in her research work. On many instances, the conversation is directed to the role of parents rather than clinicians, but this episode has huge value for those without children and significant value even if you've never even seen a child in your clinical work. If you seek to obtain an understanding of where your adult patient's pain beliefs, emotional responses and behaviours may originate, then this podcast offers a real insight. So I bring you... Dr. Melanie Knoll. Melanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I'm I'm entering this conversation really as a complete ignoramus in terms of the literature, at least until I had to do some research and read around your work and get a sense of the kind of landscape of kind of paediatric pain psychology, which was not an area which I'm familiar with, but I'm totally fascinated with, both as a parent and as, as a clinician. So thank you so much for coming to speak. No, I'm really excited to be here. As we were just speaking offline, you're kind of reasonably famous around Twitter and social media, but maybe just introduce 
yourself and your clinical background and your kind of current academic background too? Sure. I don't feel famous, but um, Twitter is an interesting world. Yeah. So I'm a clinical uh, psychologist, a child psychologist. I have a background in developmental psychology. So I can't, before I got into clinical psychology, I was researching what children could remember. So I was researching their autobiographical memory development and also language. So that's relevant for your podcast, Words Matter. So, you know, we were really interested, you know, as a master's student in developmental psychology around, um, you know, whether kids can be reliable eyewitnesses, you know, whether they can remember stressful events and how language really has a powerful role in how they remember these experiences in their life. Um, And then I got into uh, pediatric pain through my clinical psychology PhD. That's when I started working with who someone who really is famous, Christine Chambers. And that's how I really fell into pain, pun intended. Uh, And so I joined Christine's lab and started to, you know, Christine is brilliant. And she said, what do you want to study for your PhD? Go away and, and come back with an idea. And that's when I thought, oh, okay, what about memory for pain? What about how children remember painful experiences um, and how language may influence that? And from there, um, I did a postdoc in Seattle with another famous psychologist, uh, Tanya Palermo. And that's when I really extended this work into the area of chronic pain and post-surgical pain and the role of memory in the transition from acute to chronic pain. Um, And after that, uh, this dreamy job came up in Calgary, Alberta. Never thought I'd live in Alberta, although I am a Canadian. So it was good to get back to Canada. Um, And it was basically a job created by this huge philanthropic donation to create excellence in pediatric pain here in Alberta. Uh, And they were looking for someone who studies the psychosocial aspects of children's pain. So that never happened. So it was like meant to be. And that's where I launched my lab. And now I've been here for, I'm in my sixth year. uh, And we have all kinds of research that I'm excited to talk to you about, right? Ranging from children's memory for pain, you know, um, to the portrayal of pain in the media, popular media, the intersection of trauma and chronic pain, the transition from acute to chronic pain, and the intergenerational transmission of pain. It's all, and where do we start? It's all so, so interesting. And I think, so from my point of view, one of the reasons why I really want to speak to you is that I'm invariably interested in adults' pain experience and the sorts of beliefs and behaviors that are tied to some of those experiences and are associated with persistent chronic pain. So, you know, going back, where do these beliefs and behaviors come from? And invariably, it's, it's from childhood. So, so I definitely want to, want to get into that. And I don't know the literature on, on child or pediatric chronic pain and the kind of prevalence and how it relates to you know, adult pain. So, so much is written about you know, persistent chronic or chronic pain in adults, but I'm ashamed to say I know very little in relation to children's chronic pain and, and that group. Yeah, I know. It's a great question. And, and don't be ashamed because, you know, I'm sometimes at big review panels with leading scientists and they turn to me at lunch and they say, chronic pain in kids? That's the thing? So, you know, it, it's amazing how um, how little is known 
well, we know a lot, but maybe we as scientists don't do a great job of communicating that widely. Um, so let me give you a crash course. Um, pediatric chronic pain. So I mean pain that lasts for three months or more. You know, if you look at the prevalence across the world, and this has been reviewed, it's that magic number one in four or one in five kids, okay? around Usually around the time of puberty, although it depends on the pain type, but we're talking about things like headaches, musculoskeletal pain, back pain, stomach aches. Um, this is really prevalent. And um, it's been shown that the prevalence rates of chronic pain in kids, particularly adolescents, is increasing. Um, so, you know, Jackie Clinch and Chris Eccleston uh, coined, you know, uh, pediatric chronic pain. I think they were referring to musculoskeletal pain as a modern public health disaster. Um, you know, we know from the work of Niels Groenewald that this costs $19 billion USD a year. Um, it has a devastating or can have a de devastating effect on, on all aspects of children's development, right? Like, because it robs them of, sort of social functioning, uh, school functioning. It's hard to pay attention. You know, just the list goes on. Um, and and what's really interesting, Oliver, is that in the last ten years or so, um, we actually finally have some longitudinal data following these kids when they grow up, and that's really you know, this ties to what you said earlier, we're learning that, you know, up to, if, if chronic pain in childhood is not addressed or adequately treated, um, up to two thirds of these kids can become adults with chronic pain. This is why this is so relevant. And I'm so, it warms my heart for you to recognize that like, you know, the adults that you work with had childhoods, right? Like this is not to become Sigmund Freud and get all psychoanalytic mm -hmm. here, but our childhoods do inform the future and pediatric chronic pain is a thing. And it's, um, we don't have a clear sense of why this develops. Uh, so the etiology, just like in the adult literature is really unknown. And so that's the, the field is really kind of obsessed with figuring out why does chronic pain develop, especially in childhood? Why does an acute pain transition to a chronic pain? And what we're also understanding is that this is not limited to one life or one child. You know, there is this clear intergenerational transmission of pain. And we work with patient partners, you know, one patient partner that I am thinking of now, who's had pain in four generations of her family. Her kids have it, she has it, her mom had it, her grandmother had it. So we're really trying to figure that out. But it is a it's one of the most prevalent child health conditions, and yet there's this silence and around it and this oppression of it, and of course, huge stigma. But just even in scientific and clinical communities, it's, it's still sort of not widely known that this is a big problem. For sure. And I think just thinking about my own practice, but also colleagues, it's all, almost never, and students I work with, it's never talked about that you should explore a patient's childhood pain you just don't go that far back you kind of talk you're obviously interested in the factors and the the more kind of salient current factors around someone's pain experience and the kind of social and psychological factors but you just you just don't i just don't think to to go that far back so so that was one point but the second really interesting thing was, was this intergenerational 
kind of spread of pain, if you like. So I had a, a chap called uh, Ben Darlow, who's a who's a Kiwi physiotherapist, but it's done quite a bit of work on on the the beliefs around low back pain and how they the origin of those beliefs and how patients with back pain the sort the nature of those beliefs and the essentially the transmission or the influence of clinicians' beliefs on patients' beliefs. So it turns out that if you think your back pain is due to kind of small green gremlins crawling around your back, then given enough time and exposure, the patient will start to hold similar beliefs. And I just wonder in terms of that intergenerational pain experience, can you explain that? Is it is it just a handing down of experiences or I guess there's some genetics thrown in the mix too? Yeah, no, a couple of things I think about as you're talking, like this is really interesting. You talk about low back pain and beliefs and where, where does the pain, like our origin stories matter. Mm. Our beliefs about the cause of our pain matters. We have a whole line of research on diagnostic uncertainty. So the, the perception that a label or an explanation for your health problem or your chronic pain problem is inaccurate or false. And it's a huge, huge elephant in the room, right? And it's very prevalent. So a lot of the people we work with who have pain, we find up to 40% of kids in tertiary care. So they've gone through years of trying to find a diagnosis, negative test after negative test. Well, up to 40% don't believe that you know what's going on. They don't believe the physician really understands the cause of the pain. They think something else more sinister is happening. So an example would be, you know, tumors. There's a tumor that they haven't found out about, and that's what's causing my migraine. And it's so fundamental, that belief. How would we, how would we ever buy into, let's face it, a bit of a weird treatment, you know, which is like, do these things that cause more pain. And it's exactly how we treat fears and anxiety, right? Do the thing that scares you. But if you don't believe that, you know, this, that, that there is no danger, how would you ever you know, go through with those um, recommendations? So anyway, I thought about that as you were talking. But back to your final question. Um, why is that intergenerational? That is a very humongous question. And, um, and I don't want to give you um, a really... Um, unsatisfying response by saying it's biopsychosocial, but it's biopsychosocial. <laughs> I mean, 70% of kids with migraine have a parent with migraine. So obviously there are genetic influences, right? And we also think there are epigenetic influences. Um, there's a neurobiology here, okay? But, you know, as a psychologist and someone who's really into sort of sociocultural influences, it's clear that social learning is a powerful influence too, right? So if you have a parent who has had, let's use back pain, debilitating back pain or migraines, and you grew up seeing that, you know, when mom, when mom had a, a migraine, you know, she used to have to close the, close the, the blinds and, and, you know, it's like you're learning about how to handle pain. And that's not blaming parents. My goodness. I, I've never had a migraine. The people I work with, I can't imagine how you know debilitating that can be. Um, but kids are also learning about, you know, through modeling through their parents, but also through, you know, operant conditioning, right? Like how are a parent who has pain seeing your child have pain, that's obviously going to influence 
how you respond to a child. So if you've had a history of migraines and they've been debilitating and you have a lot of empathy and caring, you know, for your child, it all comes from a good place, I'm sure. You know, when your child has pain, how are you responding? How protective or overprotective are of you, of them are? you. Um, and, you know, there's been some great work by like Lisbeth Goubert, who, you know, developed this conceptual model of pain empathy. Basically, she she says that like, observing a child in pain, you can't observe a child in pain and not feel stress, right? But depending on whether that distress is so personally distressing that you need to push it away, right? Yeah. It's for me to see my child in pain because it's bringing back all of these traumatic memories from my childhood, you know, then maybe I'm more likely to let my child stay home from school or let them, you know, um, stay in the house and things like that. Uh, Because not only is it because it's a loving thing, right? I don't want them to feel pain, but it also is removing my own distress. Um, And so there's, I mean, I could talk on and on and on about this, but so I think you know, this is why we're partnering with neuroscientists, right? I mean, I work with people who study this in animals, right? Uh, To look at sort of the neurobiology and the epigenetic changes that happen, you know, that get passed down from one generation to the next. But um, we're also really interested as psychologists in sort of those social learning pathways um, that also play a role and those responses. I always want to understand why something happens, but I also want to see, you know, you know, I want to look at modifiable things that we can actually target and change an intervention. Yeah, completely. It's, it's, it just strikes me that when patients come to see me, they have a whole range of frameworks by which they try and make sense of what's going on and and how was that framework pieced together and i guess it's a combination of social media you talked about i think previously that you know how we communicate pain and the, the messages which are out there but also you know my mum had back pain and she put a hot cabbage on her back and her grandmother she did that too and the, the hot cabbage it warms you can see how these beliefs just get passed down from generation to generation and and this these conceptual frameworks about someone's pain experience are just kind of handed down from one generation to the next. Yeah, and and we learn about how how we can, you know, get relief for pain. Right? It's funny, I was I was with my realtor, I'm buying a house. <laughs> this is random. And he was asking me about what I was doing and I was talking about pain and, you know, uh I was talking about pain and how, you know, I'm studying how to make it better and he's like, "Yeah, but like medicine, right?" <laughs> like like it, it's just interesting. Because for him, somewhere he's learned that pain is something that can only be, can only abate, you know, through pharmacological, you know, medicines, you know, treatments. And so where do we learn that? Where do we learn that there are options of how we can respond in certain, you know, in certain states? I find that really fascinating. And, you know, something, Oliver, we don't talk about a lot, but like I've started to get really interested in is like the broader societal and cultural influences, like the media, you know, like, like what are the messages that kids are being bombarded with about pain? Where, you know, you think about like sex and gender differences in pain. Where does that come from? Is it all biological and, you know, I, I was watching a, of course, you know, about Chris Eccleston of, of, you know, the famous pain psychologist, you know, and he was talking about how, 
really the socio the sociology the philosophy you know the the anthropology the political science of pain has really been not well explored right and i i wonder why that is and i think that's a great disservice to the field but i think overwhelmingly the focus has been on the biomedical you know the mechanisms and, and even using the word mechanism of course we must mean spinal cord and genetics and like all of that and that's all important but like, look at the placebo effect. It's if that's not the clearest, you know, demonstration of the power of the mind. Um, and we know that there's huge societal stigma. Where does all that come from? And we need to start unpacking those influences and giving those influences as much attention as as these sort of individual cellular molecular mechanisms. You mentioned the P word, politics. Oh, we'll, we'll carry on with that stream. But you're right in terms of thinking about social media and where people get their information from, thinking about politics, for example, whether it's, you know, the current pandemic or whether it's the upcoming election in the US, all that kind of stuff. Social media it has this huge kind of persuasion now. It's a real source of info. And who are the people that spend lots of time on social media? I'm, I'm guessing kids and adolescents are spending vast amounts of time. And, and I'm thinking about the sorts of stuff that flashed up on my social media in regards to pain and back pain and weird devices to kind of help pain, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see, you know, or to to understand the role of social media in in, in creating or constructing some of these these beliefs, because no doubt it, it's, it's relatively new, right? 10 years or something, Facebook's been around, something like that. So, so the sorts of beliefs now that will kind of start to be expressed in you know, 15, 20-year-olds will be quite different to the sorts of beliefs that occurred or were developed prior to social media. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I'm just curious, like what, just just in your N of one experience, what are the messages, do you think? So, Like what are you seeing? So the stuff that flashed up on my social media, which I just report as spam every other post, are shirts that you can wear that correct your the, the look of your body or the, your spine, the shape of your spine, and that will just kind of prevent back pain. You forget the, the fact that back pain is a is a complex interactional experience. You just have to wear this tight t-shirt, and pain will be will be kind of vanished. And so they're largely structural, you know, biomechanical, biomedical messages around pain, and and interventions or, or kind of quick fixes around that. And that's no wonder patients come into my to my to my clinic and they say i know i've got bad posture i know that my posture is you know it relates to my pain and, and these are the, the common beliefs that society have around around back pain that's that's pretty certain yeah quick fix i mean it's just like i was just thinking like when i was a teenager watch you know this is this is because this is this is capitalism too right it's like we want to sell products and they want to sell those shirts. And, you know, I, of course, if I use the shampoo, I'm going to have gorgeous model hair. Like it's, it's the same thing, right? Um, I think it's really interesting how little has been done in terms of, you know, understanding how pain is portrayed uh, in these mass, you know, media sort of forms. Um, we just got a paper published in pain. It's not even out yet, but when it is, I'm happy to share where we looked at how pain was being portrayed in the popular media. So we looked at like 10 movies. How old are your kids? Uh, it's a five-year-old. Okay, perfect. Well, okay, so mine are um, almost seven. So we were looking at media. So the top 10 movies 
and the top six children's shows. And we, we picked, you know, stereotypically boy shows, girl shows. We wanted to have a mix, right? Um, and we picked media that was targeted at four to six-year-olds. So, right? So, so this is going to ring a bell for you. And we were interested, like, let's face it, okay? Do you ever need a break and turn on the television? Like, does your kid watch, <laughs> you know, do they watch screens, especially during the pandemic? And we had no idea, like, this is such a formative developmental period. What are kids watching? How is pain portrayed? Um, and this, these are, you know, these are shows and movies that millions and millions of kids watch, right? Peppa Pig, Octonauts, you know, Paw Patrol, Frozen, you know, uh, Lego 2. And, uh, and the bottom line was most of the pain, pain was portrayed. So uh, I think about eight, eight times per hour or something. So that's quite a lot. And the vast majority of the types of pain that were portrayed were violence, violence and in injuries. And when we looked at, you know, like how were people responding to the characters in pain, right? Because kids are learning about this through their favorite characters. Basically, people didn't do, they didn't respond. And if they did, they were responding in unhelpful ways, like laughing at the sufferer. And then we actually coded how empathic the observers were and they like weren't showing empathy and there were some really stereotypical gender differences like the girl the damsel in distress versus the stoic boy who doesn't need any help and so like super unhelpful messages and uh anyway it was such a i thought such a fun study to do but also i think a real commentary on like this is what our kids are watching this is what they're learning and invariably, we know that that's going to have an influence on their understanding, their own beliefs about pain. It's not just, you know, and I think even me, right? Like I study the social context. I study how parents respond, how clinicians respond, you know, but I'm really getting more and more fascinated by these broader influences because we could, we could blow the lid off this and really change messaging in society, but kids aren't, kids aren't learning. And so I know. I think it'd be fascinating. You should do a study on Twitter. <laughs> I, yeah, but it, it also strikes me how daunting the kind of the the task is to change. You know that the influence, the sources which influence children's pain beliefs and future experiences are so vast. I mean, if we're talking about, I was just thinking about sticking out some posts on social media to change beliefs. We've got to now go to Frozen or Disney. And say, listen, if you're going to portray pain, these are some of the helpful messages you might want to feed into your into your show and it's just it's a lot of we've got a lot of work on our hands i think yeah it feels daunting you know but if you look at any movement right if you look at change look at autism or look at other kinds of how has change happened even in pediatric pain when did we shift from believing that babies could feel pain what caused that shift science yes but basically you know brave mothers and, you know, people who lost children. So this is why in order to really, I think, uh, ignite a movement and really ignite change, we need people who live with pain. We need stories. We need people with lived experience that can really partner with us to make some noise, right? And that's, I don't know about, you know, the UK as much, but I can say in Canada, this is a real movement, patient advocacy this is something that definitely in my work that I'm doing more and more of that like all of our projects have a 
have a mother, you know, like intergenerational uh, work that we're doing. We have two mothers who have chronic pain, who have children with chronic pain. And so I think I hear what you're saying. I, I think scientists can publish our papers and we can, you know, and it's great. We're having this podcast. It's great. We're doing these things, right? Like people weren't do people weren't doing these things, you know, 10, 20 years ago, but really we need advocacy too. Like the field of pain needs advocacy and beyond the professionals, you know, like we need the people, the real experts with people with lived experience. And I think that's going to get us further in, in changing systems, I think. Yeah. Or we just make this podcast four hours long. That um, that might make a dent. Yeah, totally. We're going to change the world. Exactly. So I want to get on to, I, I think the, the body of your work, which is around pain memories, or at least your, your doctoral work started looking at children's pain memories. Is that right? Yeah. So on the face of it, I think I know what a pain memory is, but I, I probably don't. So maybe just start by saying, what is a child's pain memory, or at least the way that you, you've been using or how it's used in the literature? And then you can go on to talk about some, some of the implications of those. Yeah, um, it's a great question. What is a pain memory? And there's a lot of confusion sometimes because sometimes people refer to pain memories as like that, that term was actually, that was used to describe phantom limb pain. Like, right? Like that was a memory. Other people talk about memories as like central sensitization. That's your, you know, that's your body's memory, pain memory. What I'm talking about when I talk about pain memories is really, uh, and what I really focus on is sort of uh, declarative, explicit memories, autobiographical memories that can be explicitly and consciously recalled. So just to be real, I'd say, Oliver, do you remember your last flu shot? Yes, I do. I'm due another one. So try to remember like when you were getting your flu shot and try to remember where you were and and close your eyes and tell me how much pain did you feel on a zero to 10 when you got your flu shot? Maybe a three or two. And how scary was it from zero to 10? Zero, not scary, 10. Really scary. Zero scary. Not scared at all. Super stoic, super brave. Um yeah, so you just you just remembered. You remembered an experience that happened in your life. So that's autobiographical memory. Uh, you were able to explicitly recall it through language. You know, there's also implicit memories. Um, and this is what, you know, there's not to get Freudian, but there are memories that we have that are not available to our consciousness, right? I'll give you an example. There was a seminal study uh, by Anna Taddeo and colleagues in Canada where they followed babies born of diabetic mothers. And the babies who were born of diabetic mothers had to get repeated heel lances. So, you know, skin breaking procedures in their heel for blood testing. And they compared that group of babies to a group of babies not born of diabetic mothers who didn't get those skin breaking procedures. And they followed up at a vaccine injection several months later. And just as the nurse was cleansing the skin, which is not painful, right? She's just cleansing the skin. Uh, the babies who had had those early painful experiences started showing distress. They started showing anticipation, raising the possibility that maybe they developed an implicit memory. The babies can't talk. The babies may not be consciously doing what you just did, but that's a memory too. But really the kinds of memories that I study are those explicit autobiographical memories that you can share through language. What, what age do you, does that begin to kick in? So when can 
what I guess the participants you might be dealing with, what's the age limit or the low the low limit, if you like? Yeah, that's a great question. So we study kids like so there's evidence that even three-year-olds, you know, you know, once the, once you start talking and kids, you know, even infants can develop explicit memories, right? They just don't have the language to share. Um, but there's sort of this black box period, the first three years of life called infantile amnesia. So that as you get older, you can't really remember stuff that happened to you when you were two or one. Um, but after about three, three and a half, those memories become available even as you get older. So, um, but there's also issues with self-report, right? Like, and measurement and the the validity of tools. So the lowest age that I study is four, but usually it's around five. So your, your, your child's age, um, is it a she? It's a, so he can totally remember, uh, no pressure. Now, now the pressure's on his parent. Um, yeah. And, and basically, you know, we have shown so just to get at the implications, uh, so we so, so kids remember these experiences. We all remember our you know painful experiences. You could go back and remember an injury probably you had as a kid. And what we find is memory is not like a tape recorder. So kids and adults, some will remember you know painful experiences accurately, but about one in four will actually develop. Uh, negatively biased memory. So they're going to be remembering pain as being worse than it actually was. The example would be when you said your pain was a three out of 10. Okay. That it would be a negatively biased memory. At the time you were actually getting the flu shot, you said it was like a zero or one. Well, you're developing this negatively biased memory, right? So it's kids like that, that develop those kinds of negatively biased memories that then go on, what do you think happens the next time they get a flu shot or the next time they have to go to the dentist, right? Like they're more scared. They're... So these memories are actually a powerful predictor of how you're going to cope with pain in the future, yeah. right? Um, and so we've really been trying to figure out like which kids develop these memories and why. A spoiler alert, if you have an anxious parent or you're anxious yourself, you're more likely to develop these negatively biased memories. Girls are more likely to develop them. But there are things that we can do uh, through language, how we talk about these things, that can actually reframe the memory to be positive and accurate. And we've shown that those memories not only influence how upset or how much pain you'll feel in the future, but we've actually shown that that actually influences whether or not a child will develop chronic pain you know, after surgery. And, and, you know, if you, you know, use the example of like a needle phobia, you know, almost every adult with a needle phobia can root that back to a poorly, poorly managed, painful experience they had as a kid. Right. So these memories for pain that we have really set the stage for how, you know, we're going to cope with pain in the future. That's so interesting. So, so in terms of reframing the pain, is it reframing in the moment? So I'm thinking my son will uh, my son's never featured in my podcast, but he is today because he's five and he went to the dentist. He's had a load of dental work. I'm a good parent, I promise you. But for some reason, he's developed, you know, he developed cavities. Poor guy had, you know, a two crowns, two root canals at five. Right? So he's got two silver teeth. He looks like a pirate. He loves it. Yeah. But nonetheless, I didn't, I went with him. I didn't send my wife because she's a needle phobic and catastrophizes at, at the, any moment um, that he might feel pain. So I'm wondering. So I'm wondering about how I reacted 
to that experience in the moment? Could you, so is it, is, it ref, is, it framing it, is it framing it in the moment or is it the following day when we start to, we start to reconstruct that experience? Is there a, so yeah, tell me both options. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you're asking amazing questions. So it's, it's all, it's all of it, right? So if, like, like what I just said, if anxiety influences, so if you're anxious, you're more likely to feel more pain. Yeah. If you feel more pain, you're more likely to remember pain in a bad way. So all of these, it's like a cascading effect, right? Like we can, you know, and so a couple of things that you said, I didn't ask about, you know, what, how you did react, but you know, you just said, my wife catastrophizes. My wife is really anxious. So I went with my child. Great. Amazing. Imagine if every parent like teamed up like that, right? Like it's, and it's okay to do that. Right. You know, I, none of this work is meant to be blamey, but if you do have a dual parent household um, and you do have the luxury to trade off, wonderful. Get the parent or the caregiver who's less anxious to go with the child. hundred <laughs> percent. Um, so good job, Oliver. That was great. So can we use like, okay, well, we can use the dentist as an example, or I'll use like a needle of flu shot. Okay. Cause that's really timely. Now everyone should get their flu shots <laughs> and I'm preparing my kids uh, to get theirs. Everything I can do before, during, and after is going to affect the memory. Right. And so for the flu shot example, you know, I am going to get prepare my kid. They need to know. I'm not going to just take them to the dentist or take them in. Oh, surprise. It's needle time. Right. Preparation is really important. A sense of control is really important. And, and so what I do, like we know that like topical anesthetics, so numbing cream, you can buy it in Canada over the counter. It's great. They're little patches. Um, we know that that can cut the pain like in half, right? So I'm talk telling my kids about magic cream. Now they're too old and they're like, it's not magic though, um, but I'm buying the magic cream. I bring them with me. Well, before COVID I did um, to, you know, to the drugstore to get the magic cream. I'm talking about how it's really going to help. Then I'm talking about, this is all preparation for things we're actually going to do, but it's giving the child a sense of control. Then I'm saying, I know distraction is super helpful. So I'm saying, hey, we're going to bring iPads too. And like, you can watch whatever you want, whatever you want on YouTube or Netflix, you can watch whatever, what are you going to watch? So we're talking about this cool show they're going to watch. And then we're also planning, and this is not evidence-based, but I think it works, um, is sort of like, what's our celebration for bravery going to be? Like, are we going to go out for pizza? I take them to the toy store. Like I go overboard on that stuff too. Um, and, uh, so that's the preparation. Then we're taking, so the child then goes into get the flu shot, knowing that there's stuff that's going to help them. Right. And we have a plan which gives the child a sense of controllability and predictability of the situation. Uh, and then, you know, while the painful experience is happening, we're doing anything to reduce the pain, distraction, you know, positioning where the child is set, sit up, you know, sat up right and feels in control. And, you know, they have the, the numbing cream. Great. Then after that, we're doing anything to reframe that experience. And it's very simple, Oliver. One, talk about it, right? You got to talk about it to remember it. Shine your spotlight of attention on anything positive that happened. 
So maybe there was a TV in the dentist's office, or maybe there was, uh, you know, the show that they were watching. Remember when, so that was really cool. Like what you were watching that show. That was really funny. And, and talk about the show. Maybe there was a friendly dentist or a friendly, you know, uh, nurse talk about how nice she was. Wasn't she so nice? Remember she said this. And so basically you're talking about the painful experience, which is broad. You need to think about that broadly Yeah. and, and highlighting anything positive that happened. Then you're talking about, you know, um, if you catch your child exaggerating, so say your child was like, it was so scary. It was like, I cried for 10 minutes and it was so painful. I thought I was going to die. Then you need to like validate that. Yes, there was pain, but, but actually I was there and it wasn't 10 minutes. You did cry a bit, but then do you remember you started watching Lego movie again? And, and, and so you, you basically help them correct those exaggerations. You don't lie to them, but you correct it. And the third thing, which is really, really important is you want to foster a sense of self-efficacy, right? A, a sense of confidence in the child's ability to cope with pain. This is used, like showing them that they were brave, right? You were so brave. You took deep breaths. You, you know, you were distracting yourself. Do you know that's really helpful? You were doing that. And then I use a bit of suggestion by saying, wow, like I see so many kids, like I work with so many kids and you rock that. Like that makes me really confident that you're going to rock it next time. Then you take them out for pizza or whatever, uh, you know, let them watch a movie and you're celebrating. So you're wrapping positive experiences around what could have been super scary. And, you know, so what I've done there and listen, I've also botched this. And that's what I love about the memory stuff. Sometimes things go wrong, despite all your knowledge. Yeah. And what I love about the memory work is you can still do that wrapping the experience with positive, um, positive language and stuff. Um, but what you're doing is by preparation, you're reducing anxiety, which is powerful predictor of pain and, and negatively biased memories by giving controllability. Yeah. You're managing the pain because the best predictor of pain, future pain is pain, right? Uh, and, and same for memory. So you want to manage the pain, but then afterwards, that's where you're using language to really help the child reframe you know, that experience. And children especially need our help in doing that, right? Like they are looking to us to understand experiences. Um, so that's, that's my long-winded way of saying it's all time points, you know? And I think we've thought a lot about pain management in the moment, but like we need to do something to reduce the anxiety. And then after the moment is over, there's a huge window of opportunity to, to, you know, frame that. I've got so many questions and, and kind of comments. One is about, you mentioned self-efficacy and developing self-efficacy in, in children. Well, we know in adults that it's such a strong predictor of, of positive outcome in relation to things like back pain. If you can, as a therapeutic target, working on someone's confidence to either to, to move with pain or to live with pain is, is, a, you know, is, a, is a great therapeutic endeavor. But I also had a question about, I guess, about deceit. So, so my the dentist, so my poor son had three, on three occasions, three injections into his. At no time did she mention needle or injection, but she said, and she was really good actually. She was pretty, wasn't the warmest dentist, but really to the point and quite, um, 
control. She controlled the environment well, and, and he trusted her. Anyway, she never mentioned needle or scratch. I just wonder what the role of deceit is and whether it's fair to lie to our kids in order for a kind of greater good or outcome that they're not going to get freaked out. And she hid the needle, so he never even saw the needle. Um, he, doesn't even know, he doesn't even know he had an injection. He just knows that his mouth went to sleep. So should I, should I break? Should I, can I tell him the, the truth? This is, I mean, you don't ask easy questions. This is, now we're getting into ethics, which is cool. I'm, I'm all about it. Um, look, it sounds like that worked for your child, but I, I am not a proponent of deceit at all. And this is really important. This comes up all the time when I give talks about memory, right? Like, Where's the line between invalidating a, a child's experience or, you know, it's not about planting false memories in a child. Like I actually, I, I, I believe ethically we need to be truthful. And by, while we're delivering truth, we're also using a lot of, you know, I'll just use an example. Like, yeah, they're, they're going to put a little needle you don't have to say it's a big, massive needle. Look at it. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like language, words matter, Oliver. I don't know if you know, words <laughs> matter. Um, you know, they put a little tiny needle in and, and, you know, you feel it for a sec, but you know what the dentist is really good at? They put this numbing cream on. So, you, you know, you might feel a tiny little prick and then nothing at all. I mean, and actually dentists are masters at like, you know, there's always the TV on the ceiling, distraction, and they all they have all this kind of numbing stuff. They'll always give you anxiolytics if you're super anxious. Like dentists are really on top of it generally. Um, and so, I don't think lying. I, I I just I I can't get behind it. And and I but I you know you bring up something really important which is like even in research when we talk about deception and using deception I'm a psychologist we sometimes use deception in research right and it's you know in order to justify deception you have to argue that there's a greater good and so what you were saying right it's will benefit society you do appropriate debriefing the problem with lying is that like it went well that time but what if your child did notice the needle. What if that, that can backfire, right? And so I think it's, I think, you know, we're, we, we should be truthful with kids, but really clever and thoughtful about how we deliver that truth, right? Um, and, and what we wrap that fact in, which is a lot of um, confidence in, you know, you said that he trusted the dentist. Like, this is something we don't talk about either. Trust in the clinician is huge, right? Like, it's huge. Um, but even in the memory reframing work, we're never lying. We're never saying something happened that didn't. False memories are a thing. People, you know, you know, and that I, I you know, I, it's, it's unethical to do that. Um, and we don't need to do that. We, it, we're just helping them remember things that actually happened, right? That they may have forgotten because they're focusing so much on the needle and, you know, the threat and things like that. So I am not a proponent of lying. And I guess the, the, the challenge is that he, he, at some point, he will know that he will have a needle in his gum at some point, and he hasn't really built any resilience or, 
or hasn't learned from that to some extent because he, for he knows he's never had a needle jabbed in his gum, but actually he has three times. Well, like, and I don't know, like, I mean, we'd have to talk and talk, 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 talk to, to know more, but, but he has had a needle. Yeah, he has, but he doesn't know that. I, I haven't framed it that, that it wasn't framed in the moment. And I thought, well, he, he's, why do I, if I'd introduced the, the idea of a needle post-hoc, he might've post-hoc freaked out. Like, oh my God, I had a needle. I had no idea I had a needle. Uh, and then, but yeah, I could have, I, I could have introduced the fact that he had a needle, but framed it much more positively. Well, and maybe it's not too late. Yeah, it was only a couple of weeks ago, so probably not. You know, maybe it's not too late. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, the dentist just puts that little, you know, they did it last time. You didn't even notice. Like, that's because they use that awesome numbing cream. You can barely feel it. Like, I, you know, I love going to the dentist and, you know, that, you know, and so it's, it's, um, I, I, but I think you're touching on something really important, which is a really, uh, and all of us as parents experience it too, right? Like, Sometimes we don't say things or we don't talk about things because we think it may backfire or we think it may. Okay. So if I talk to my son about, because he's more fearful about an upcoming flu shot, he's just going to get spun out of control. Right. And so I think that fear uh, is why we don't talk about this stuff. And so a lot of our work, and, and we see that with lots of parents and look, I've, I felt that too. Like I, I'll never forget Jasper. He, that's the name of my son fell down the stairs. He was like a toddler. Like he just like, it was like a pretty spectacular fall. And like, I looked over and I was like, Whoa, but I, I was like, don't react. Don't react. Like, I, you know, and I thought, is that the best thing to do? Um, I didn't react. Maybe part of that was because I knew that if I reacted, it would make him more upset and, and, and of course, if he had shown upset and come to me, of course I would respond. But I think this, I think generally parents are avoidant of talking about painful experiences and I don't blame them because, you know, it's really only recently that we have some idea of how we should do that. Right. And that's what I'm so excited about this work. Um, because it's, it's giving some, guidance on on how we might have these conversations in a way that are less likely to backfire and there's such you know those three strategies are so simple really aren't they they're they're things that you know you'd hope any parent can do yeah and integrate into their their reminiscing or their discussion with with their child exactly before during or after exactly yeah and uh it, it really is simple, you know, and it's, it's funny, like, you know, cause I do, you know, I have a grant to do really sophisticated brain imaging and that's really cool. And I work with neuroscientists to look at epigenetic mechanisms and like all of that stuff, you know, and, and, you know, rodent imaging, like all very sophisticated things. But I think some of the work that we do that is so simple, just ob- using observation, how is pain portrayed in the media? How might we just talk to a child in 15 minutes to alter how they remember? This isn't like high tech, complicated stuff, but it's so powerful, right? And in terms of, we, so we've spoken obviously lots about parents, but I'm assuming these strategies could be integrated into clinical practice. So cl- clinicians that see, see kids in their practice. 
Yeah, exactly. So um, I worked with a researcher, amazing researcher, Tasha Stanton. You might know her. Um, also famous on Twitter. Um, she's a, a wonderful physiotherapist and researcher. Um, and we actually used this intervention with nurses who were giving school-based vaccinations. And, 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 uh, and it was just like a small pilot trial. But there is a lot of power in parents, right? Because they have that history. So reframing is a lot easier when you were there. Yeah. Right? Like, how do you reframe a memory if you just met the child the first time? So this is why I think it would be particularly useful for clinicians that see patients repeatedly, uh, that have a knowledge of, of one's history. But parents, I, I don't know, my heart is in sort of the p- parent empowerment movement. Who's going to work harder to help their to help a child than a parent, right? So, but I think, yes, clinicians can use this and, uh, and, and should. And so you published or you mentioned the pediatric or children's fear avoidance model. Yes. So that's something that you know, floats around mosquito practice quite a bit in relation to back pain. So patients experience, they have a pain experience and they, there's some threatening illness information, they catastrophize, there's fear, and there's this kind, of, this kind of cycle. And I just wonder how the fear avoidance model relates to your work and you know, kids more, more generally. Yeah, so the Flyin and Linton model is, is famous, right? And a couple of us uh, back in 2012, so Laura Simons, a great friend of mine and a brilliant pediatric pain researcher, again with Lisbeth Goubert, developed the interpersonal fear avoidance model. Um, and that was really extending and expanding the fear avoidance model in adults to children. Um, and, and, you know, importantly, what was really unique about that model was how parents play a role. Again, this is a theme that keeps coming up, right? Um, so critical. Like you, you can't study pediatric pain without studying parents, right? Like they're just so, so hugely influential. And at the, around the same time, um, I collaborated with um, Gord Asmundson, who had done a lot of work on the early, um, a Canadian who had done a lot of work on the early fear avoidance model, like really looking at anxiety sensitivity and its role in fear avoidance. Uh, And we also developed um, a model, a pediatric fear avoidance model. It has huge relevance. Um, Like the adult fear avoidance model, um, it's a model to understand how pain can transition from an acute to a chronic state through cognitive and emotional processes, right? And so the model is basically, and that's the million dollar question, right? Why do, why do, why do kids develop chronic pain? So it's a, you know, it's a great model that has applicability showing that when confronted with pain, uh, you can either engage in catastrophic thinking, so ruminating, perseverating, magnifying how bad it's going to be, feeling helpless. If you engage in that thinking style, that's likely to lead to fears and avoidance, um, depression, disability, worse pain. And, and so it's very similar. Those pediatric models um, are very similar to the adult model. What's unique about it is the role of parents. So when it's not just a child catastrophizing, but if you are a parent and you are observing your child in pain and you're engaging in catastrophe, 
catastrophic thinking, then you're more likely to be overprotective, which feeds into a child's avoidance. And this is the this is what's really important in pediatrics, is that for a child, for a 12-year-old child, if you think about disability, it's like not going to work, not going to school, not seeing friends. Well, who's really who is really in charge of that with a child, right? A parent has to make the decision, yes, you can stay home from school. No, you don't have to do your chores. You know, maybe maybe you shouldn't go swimming this weekend. You know, you've got your migraine. So parents' own fears and avoidance can directly influence a child's avoidance. And, and there's this dynamic, we call it like a dyadic dance. We called one of our papers that a dyadic dance, right? That if, if I have pain, and I look to my parent and they look scared, right? Through their verbal and nonverbal, you know, that's that's a distressing experience for them. I'm gonna think, whoa, this must be really bad, right? And so, you know, and all of this is well-intentioned. None of this work is to blame or it's uh it's really interesting if you think about if your child was sick and had to be in the hospital or you know, had an illness an acute illness, all of the things that are not helpful when pain is chronic are helpful when pain is acute, right? You don't want to be, if you have a, your child has a bad knee injury, they should stay home. They shouldn't go to school. They should, you know, they should heal. So it's, it's really a tricky, um, a tricky process. If you think of pain and I think of it this way, almost developmentally, right? Like how we respond in very loving, you know, adaptive ways when pain is acute in our child. Somewhere along the line, those same responses are not helpful. And 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 so I have a lot of empathy for parents. I don't know what it would be like for me when my my children are 7. I don't know what it would be like for me if they turn 12 and all of a sudden they have debilitating migraines. I mean, what would I do? them stay home for all of these things right so the pediatric fear avoidance model the interpersonal fear avoidance model you know we've tested it so we just published a paper i don't think it's out yet but it's ahead of it's in press where we tested this model and we actually looked at the role of intolerance of uncertainty which is exactly what it sounds like and how that feeds into the fear avoidance model. Um, and, and it holds. And so this, this model is not just conceptual now, but has some empirical, you know, research behind it to say that like these processes work. The limitation of the model is that to really test it, you would have to do this crazy longitudinal study where you're assessing things at every different time point, but at least parts of the model do hold. Um, but I think, you know, this, I, I think that it has huge value, but it's not the be all end all of why chronic pain develop. Yeah. It, it really, it's really explaining a subset of individuals that have high fears and, yeah. and, and you know, and, and that's great. And it, it holds for them. But I think there's a lot of other, uh, a lot of other pathways to chronic pain that the model doesn't um, account for. And, and as you said, given the kind of dietic, interaction that that you could potentially influence a, a child's kind of fear avoidance beliefs through the parents so if it's the case that the parent hold you know holds fear avoidant behaviors and beliefs and is, is transmitting for want of a better word to the child that if you can begin to change or intervene at the stage of the parent then you'd hope that it would 
carry over to the child? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, we're finding that, you know, parent mental health, parent chronic pain is one of the most, you know, are the most powerful, very powerful predictors of child pain outcomes. That said, in developmental psychology, we talk about evocative effects. It's not all the parent influencing the child. The child also influences the parent, right? And so we sometimes forget about that. And I mean, I've been guilty about that too and how I present this stuff and how I write about it and think about it. But, you know, if you look at other kinds of, let's use ADHD as an example, other kinds of experiences, a a classic example of evocative effects is you take a parent of a typically developing, you know, you know, a child who doesn't have ADHD and they're parenting in all the perfect right ways. And then you take that parent and put them in a house with a child who has really significant ADHD. And all of a sudden that parent who parents really in all the, you know, adaptive ways, all of a sudden is starting to engage in these maladaptive or unhelpful behaviors. And so the child also influences the parent. Uh, And I think We need to look at that too. In this paper that we published called The Dyadic Dance, we were looking at these daily relations between parents' protectiveness and the child's pain and the mood and all of that. And we did find that, you know, the parents were, that that those behaviors and emotions were powerful drivers of the child's pain experience. But it works the other way too. Yeah. And, and there's, a, there's the, I guess, the two extremes in terms of the parent's reaction to their child's pain. You've got the, on the one end, the overly protective parent that just catastrophizes and, and engenders more anxiety in the in their mm-hmm. child. And then the other end, you've got the kind of man up, you know, don't worry about it. It can invalidate or trivialize, which it will invariably be a, a unpleasant experience by definition. And I suppose what's the... Yeah that kind of machoism saying, you know, where, where you don't want, where you kind of stifle or snuff out a child's expression of pain. And they want to talk about how horrible that experience is. And then the parent just says, enough, you know, stop moaning, get on with it. And so, yeah, how do we not fall into either one of those two extremes? Yeah, uh, another awesome question, right? Like, and I've been talking a lot about overprotection, And that's what the field of pediatric pain in terms of parenting has really focused on. And, and, you know, it's important, but we're actually starting to get more interested in other kinds of parenting. What you were talking about is like, well, you also don't want to invalidate a child. What's it like to be invalidated? You know, if you look at other types of therapy, like dialectical behavior therapy, okay, their, you know, their theory of how emotional disorders develop is from a child's invalidating early environment. So, you know, it's really interesting, Oliver, that like we don't know a lot about the role of validation in children's pain. There's been some really cool studies by Stephen Linton's group in adults. Um, and clearly it's, 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 I mean, it's fundamental in any kind of psychological theory or, you know, but, and, and yet, the research, we don't know a lot about that validation or invalidation. And and then it's also like not just what you say, but how you say it, right? So like I can give you a list of, okay, next time your child goes to the dentist, here's exactly what Oliver should say. Now, if you start sounding like Melanie, your kid's going to be like, dad, why are you being weird? Like, And it's going to backfire. So there's also a lot about how we deliver information, the nonverbals, the tone of voice, um, that all also matters. 
What we've gotten really interested in, because we're interested in sort of parent trauma and parent chronic pain and how that influences a kid, is less of so about protection and overprotection and more about consistency. What does it mean when, you know, and you think about this in the, in the realm of depression or other kinds of parental mental health, what does it mean if I'm very warm and responsive on Monday to my children and totally shut down and non-responsive on Tuesday, right? So maybe it's not as much about just, you know, one type of behavior, but how consistent we are in our behaviors. A child relying on us to behave in a certain way and there's some predictability there. So I think there's a lot around the parenting sphere that we don't know. And I think, you know, I think some of the overprotection stuff and we still look at it, it's really important and we target it in interventions. This is exactly what we're trying to get parents to do less of, but we know less about how we should deliver those behaviors, you know, how we should deliver those behaviors. And I have a close colleague, Megan McMurtry, who's done some really cool work in the area of acute pain, looking at distraction and reassurance and looking at tone of voice, whether someone uses a rising tone or a falling tone. And actually the tone and the delivery is very important, not just, you know, what kind of behavior that a parent engages in. It's fascinating. It just reminds me of a friend of mine, an American chap that lives in London, who he's got two young kids like me. And when his kids slam their heads into a metal fence, he, he in the playground, he just waits for them to come to him. And he's un, under the belief that that he needs to play down any emotional reaction of concern or um, or fear or or anything like that in relation to their their child, his son's kind of trauma. And it's just strike. It's quite. The, it's the other end. And I can. I get the the reasoning. I, I find it hard to do personally because, like you said, you, you, even when your your son fell down the stairs, you kind of thought, "How do I react?" And you you didn't react, or you kind of contained your reaction. The variation in, in parents' reaction to their kids' acute trauma. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. So I have triplets. So I'm a triplet. What? I'm a triplet. You're a triplet, no way. Yeah, yeah. See, now we're bonded for life, okay? That is so cool. I got to ask you about that. I'm a twin within a set of triplets. Amazing. So you are you have an identical... Identical twin. And the third one that looks like... That is so... Oh, wow. Okay, I can't wait to tell my kids that because they always want to know, like, triplets. So anyway, we'll talk about that after. Um, but, like, so you can relate to this, right? I bet you there's some really interesting differences between you and your siblings. Nevertheless, you had the same, you know, uterine environment, right? You had the same parents. And like, if I look at my kids, how I cannot treat them all the same. I cannot respond to their pain in the same way. I can't discipline them in the same way. And so, you know, this is where it's, it's tricky and confusing and gray because, you know, but again, it goes back to evocative effects, right? How I respond to Jasper in pain is not the same as Solea or Georgia. And so how, you know, we've got a long way to go to figure out how to tailor our approach to different kids. And, and, and I don't think we've, we've gotten that far on that front. Melanie, that's been great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. 
And I'll put in the show notes where people can find you on Twitter and, and some of your, your key papers that people can access. This was really fun. And I, I wasn't in a great mood this morning. And like now I am. So thanks for turning my day to the right direction. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain and I'll see you next time.